Well, um, let's, why don't we do what we always do and stand up and we'll read the word of God. Let me reading uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 19. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? Well, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you for your wisdom. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts from the text today. And uh, that you would grant us the same wisdom uh, that you had, especially in regard to the opinions of people. So, Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right, well, let's turn back to verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed. That's he departed also from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So now that they've received their instruction, everybody just goes their separate ways uh, doing what Jesus had been doing the whole time throughout all the villages of Israel. But the disciples we know from Mark, they went out two by two. Uh, Jesus probably had other, many other disciples who... Uh, followed him. We know he had 70 others that he appointed. We know that people from the crowds were eager to follow him around. And so they're just out preaching the gospel in the villages. Now, uh, we don't know how long they were gone for. Uh, We don't exactly know how they regrouped, but uh, I think it's safe to assume that that was all in their pre-planning, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. We know that there was no technology, though, uh, to help out with that. Have you guys realized how dependent you are on technology now? It's amazing. I mean, it used to be, I mean, does anybody still own an atlas? 
Yeah, I do too, because I love maps. But I don't know how often I'm on my way to some place, and I know that I'm within five minutes away, and I just hold my phone and I say, get me to this address, and then boom, the address comes up, and it's amazing. But I didn't have any of that. So, all right. And then, of course, as Jesus is on his circuit, the disciples of John the Baptist caught up to him. And it says, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? It almost seems a little offensive, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, by this time, uh, as the text says, John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, He's there for confronting Herod because Herod the Tetrarch has his brother's wife in in all of the most scandalous ways. And uh, we'll get to the skinny of all that when we get to chapter 14. But for now, uh, we know John's in prison and uh, he's been getting reports from his disciples about Jesus's works, his healing ministry. But there's something about Jesus's works from his perspective, that are omitted. And that's what we got to talk about. So he sends two disciples to Jesus with this question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? So the question is, why would John ask a question like that? Uh, Why would he risk asking a question like that uh, if he happened to be the coming one? Um, It's interesting. You know, so why would he ask that? After all, you know, he was there. He witnessed the Holy Spirit descend upon Christ like a dove at the baptism. He saw that. And, and, and remember, that's what he was told. The one whom you see the Holy Spirit come upon, that's the Messiah. He was told that. And then after that, uh, he heard the voice from heaven, from the Father that said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So he had all of these confirmations that Jesus was the Messiah And then, of course, also uh, some 40 days later, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, John saw Jesus walking past, and he he made that that declaration. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then again, after the masses had uh, stopped following John the Baptist, coming to his baptism, they were going to Jesus' baptism, and uh, some thought they could probably create some sectarianism out of that, some division. And John basically corrected him, said, no, you've got this all wrong. I must decrease. In fact, I'm here to decrease as he increases. He must increase. So why would this man who was a prophet ask such an uninformed question as to whether or not Jesus was the coming one? Well, it's probably because he's in prison. That's probably why. I mean, why would he be in prison if the Messiah had actually come to Israel? It's actually because John was a prophet that he was expecting Messiah to come with military might and overthrow the enemies of Israel. He had that in his mind. He wasn't wrong about what Messiah was about to do or going to do. He was just mistaken about the timing. Uh, Jesus will come and execute kings and leaders of many nations on the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill their land with dead bodies, in fact, And he will reign in the midst of his enemies. I get all of that from Psalm 110, who Jesus said was a prophet. And it's this psalm with Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Isaiah 63, so many others that were probably on John's mind as he's sitting in prison. And it's just not computing to him. This isn't working out 
the way that he thought. And, you know, when you're locked up in prison, especially for the sake of righteousness, you got one thing on your mind, jailbreak, okay? Jailbreak. So John wasn't wrong about what Christ would do at his coming. He's just mistaken about when he would do it. And Jesus is going to fulfill all of the prophecies, just as the prophets said, but he would fulfill them at the time appointed uh, by his father, not sooner, not later. In fact, Jesus even had to remind his disciples of that just before he ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, the context is interesting because for the last 40 days, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about the kingdom. And so they asked him, they came to him and they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What was on their mind? Same thing on John's mind. And this is Jesus' response. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. Yeah, that particular manifestation of the kingdom was for a later time. But as his first coming, or as to it, he had a different mission, a different mission. So Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. Uh, All of this, the bold print, large print, and all that, I didn't put that in there. That's The translators did that. Tell John that the blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and and specifically to John, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So tell John all of these miraculous things that you're seeing. And what he's saying is there's another half of messianic prophecy that you're not considering while you sit there in prison. And that's Isaiah 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. They're all there talking about what Messiah would do when he comes. All of the prophecies related to both of his comings are going to take place just as the prophets said. He's going to fulfill all of them, but they're not going to be fulfilled simultaneously. It's up to God when he does those things. So John, like most Jews of his day, under you know, Roman tyranny, uh, what prophecies do you think they gave their attention to? a conquering king. That's what they they looked at. And who could blame them? But because Jesus was fulfilling messianic prophecy, there's just no need to look for another. And because he is the Messiah of prophecy, he says, blessed is the person who's not offended because of me. The word offended means to cause to stumble. Jesus is saying, blessed is the person who does not turn away from me or reject me. Of course, that word is intended for John, who he's in a hard place, who had high expectations. He just had bad timing. But Jesus says, don't turn away from me over a misunderstanding on your part. Okay? I think that's true for us as well. We'll talk more about that when we get to the parables, this issue of understanding what is taught. So as they, the disciples of John, they leave, they're going to go report to John. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? That is when John was out the river Jordan baptizing, a reed shaken by the wind, a reed blown in the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. What was John wearing? Camel's hair. Yeah, that's pretty stylish. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. What did they go out to see? Oh, they wanted to see a prophet, a prophet. You see, no prophet had arisen in Israel since Malachi. 
some 400 years earlier. And in the current, current, that's a a compound word of current and climate. Did you catch that? (laughs) Pay attention. In the current climate of Israel at that time, there was a serious messianic buzz. Okay, people were already on the lookout, especially after the events that unfolded about this time of year, 2,000 years ago, when these, an entourage of magi came from the east. They arrived in Jerusalem and they were looking for the king of the Jews who was to be born in Bethlehem. You don't have a huge entourage come to the capital city that makes its way to the king and all of that go unnoticed. Didn't go unnoticed by the insecure Herod, who then quickly had all of the baby boys in that area around Bethlehem slaughtered. So the wise men, the behavior of the king, it didn't go unnoticed by the people. And what had happened because of that is the hope of Messiah just increased in the land. Okay? And then about 27 years later, this unusually dressed man shows up preaching repentance in the wilderness of Israel, baptizing Jews of all people in the river and telling people that he was there to prepare the way of the Messiah. So yes, there was a buzz and people had come out to the river to hear who, who they hoped was a prophet. But John, as Jesus is saying here, he was a unique prophet among all of the Old Testament prophets. John was actually a prophet who was the subject of prophecy. That's pretty cool. He was a prophet who was the subject of prophecy. And he was more than just a messianic prophet like Isaiah. John got to meet, baptize, and introduce Messiah to his people. What a privilege. Isaiah actually prophesied about John and his ministry in Isaiah 40 verse 3. And then Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. He also prophesied. And that's what's quoted here by Jesus. So the people got to hear the last prophet of the Old Testament, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant period, and because of him, they were introduced to the Son of God who would ratify the New Covenant in his blood. John was a special kind of prophet. He wasn't just your average prophet. Consider the prophecy of Malachi. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple Even the messenger of the covenant, you notice the capital there, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord said that the messenger of the covenant was coming, but John asked Jesus, are you the coming one? To which John, or not John, but Jesus answered with the prophecies that he was fulfilling, Isaiah 35 and so forth. There's no need to look for another. And so Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, There is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, that is John. So prior to John, there was no one as as great as John. Now, Jesus doesn't exactly say how, but uh, I think it's actually said in the previous verse, it's because of all the privilege that God showed him in his, his mission, his calling. But here's the interesting part. Those who will end up as least or least significant in the kingdom of heaven he says, will be greater than John the Baptist. Why? How? Well, John, of course, had very little info on Messiah, okay? But for those who follow Jesus, those who sit under his teaching, the teaching of the apostles, who will never be recognized as a prophet, some we will never know, 
will be able to give a greater account of Jesus than John. It's true, we can. You know, many unknown people throughout history have communicated more about Jesus than John could ever dream of. I mean, the, the Old Testament prophets dreamed of what the apostles enjoyed and of what we enjoyed. They, they saw dimly what we have experienced clearly. And so they are among the least in the kingdom, unknown to us, but they will be greater than John because of their witness. Understand, Jesus is talking about us if indeed we preach the gospel, if indeed we introduce Christ to the world. We get to be greater than John. I don't want to say much more about that because I don't know much more about it. Okay, it's interesting. Uh, but what I would say is this. Go become greater than John. You've been called to do it, and it's available to you. Go preach Christ to a lost world and uh, be considered great in the eyes of God. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. How many of you guys have tripped up on this verse? Yeah. And, and part of the reason is, is because translators face a bit of a difficulty because of the wording and the grammar that's found in the phrase, the kingdom suffers violence. Now, I don't know about you, but I have great difficulty understanding how God's kingdom could suffer in any way, uh, especially by violence. But that's not the only way to translate the text. The passive voice in that statement can actually be understood in the middle voice. And the wording rendered differently without stretching the words beyond uh, their normal use. Uh, the, the New Living Translation, of, of all translations, uh, actually provides that rendering. Uh, and, and, and it's also in accord with uh, D.A. Carson and other Greek scholars. It, this is the, the way that they render it there. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. You see the middle voice rather than being uh, attacked. It's, it's the one advancing. And violent people are attacking it. So the king and his kingdom have been forcefully advancing through the ministry of Jesus, his, his preaching, his miracles. But it's being attacked. It's being resisted. It says by violent men. The violent men, of course, are the Pharisees. It's the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leadership of Israel. And as Jesus pushes forward with the message of the kingdom, they're going to resist him until he's on the cross. But then they only find out that death does not stop him. It just advances the kingdom even more because he rises in victory. And uh, it's good stuff. We'll get there. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How many guys trip on this too? A few of you, yeah. In verse 10, Jesus referred to Malachi 3.1, okay, that, that John was the subject of prophecy from Malachi 3.1. But here Jesus is referring to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which says this, Behold, I, I, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay, back to our text here. Jesus says to his audience, if you're willing to receive it, John is Elijah who is to come. Now, this is interesting because Jesus was not in the habit of saying, uh, if you are willing to receive it, okay? Uh, in fact, this is the only time that he ever said it. Now, some believe that Jesus said this because it was difficult for his audience to understand how John could be Elijah. 
But why didn't Jesus use this statement before he said many other things that were even more difficult to understand? Let me lead you down a path here. In Luke 1.17, the angel told Zacharias, Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist, that his son would go before the Lord, their God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, which is a partial quotation of Malachi 4.5. But then in Mark 9, immediately after the disciples, with their own eyes, saw Elijah the prophet on the Mount of Transfiguration, they turn to Jesus and say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, that's interesting because the prophets said it way before the scribes, okay? But Jesus gave them this answer. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. Well, that's in the future tense. Thanks for making things confusing. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, past tense. Elijah is coming and Elisha has come. What does that mean? I don't know for sure, but I'm going to tell you what I believe at this point in my, my journey, okay? John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, just as the angel told Zacharias, but he is not actually literally the prophet Elijah. And even John the Baptist denied that he was Elisha in John chapter 1 verse 2. But Jesus said that Elijah would come, or literally he is coming, he will be coming, and he will be restoring all things, and that's all future tense. I believe that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, and that Elijah the prophet will actually come in the future before the actual great and dreadful day of the Lord, just as Malachi 4 says. I believe that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah for the introduction of the kingdom, and then Elijah the prophet will come just before the manifestation of Christ's earthly kingdom. Okay? Now, time will tell if I'm correct, uh, but understand this is not a, an essential element of my Christianity. Is that okay? It's just what I think at this point. Uh, we'll see what happens. Let's go back to our text. This is the fun part. <laughs> but to what shall I liken this generation? I love it. Jesus could be so, like, he's talking to his audience. He says that it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Two marketplace games played by children, whatever they were, it illustrates the childish discontent of the people of Israel, that there was just no way to please them. They were like children who were not getting their way. They're unsatisfied, and so they complain. In what regard? Well, here it is. For because John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. It means drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, Jesus responds, says, but wisdom is justified by her children. Okay, so John the Baptist was somewhat of an ascetic, okay, he, who came to his, his people completely dedicated to his mission by preparing Israel for the Messiah through the preaching of repentance and providing a baptism of repentance. He didn't mingle with people or eat in their homes. He, he, he separated himself from sinners. He wasn't there to gather people to himself. He was there to point people to Jesus, and they complained about that and said, this behavior, he has a demon. 
On the other hand, Jesus made it his aim to be with sinners, and the best way to do that was by being in their homes and enjoying meals with them. I mean, how else would he reach sinners? And the people complained. They said that he was a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of the the moral outcasts of Israel. You see, John and Jesus, they were nearly opposite in the way they went about their ministries. They brought the exact same message, but their approach was very, very different. But there was no satisfying the people. And you see this, one didn't mingle, and the other did, and the people were critical. One didn't eat and drink, the other did, and the people complained. One was separate from sinners, one was friends with them, and the people were up in arms. John was possessed by a demon, and Jesus was immoral. That's the gist of all that, okay? Can't make these people happy. And if Jesus had done what John did, they would have said that Jesus had the demon. And if John was doing what Jesus did, he would have been the glutton and the drunkard. But Jesus' wisdom is known by our children. That is, the outcome of Jesus' ministries and John's ministry, which are both very different in their approach, led many to repentance and people into the kingdom of God. So he says the product demonstrated the wisdom of their practice. They both bore good fruit. Wisdom was not found in trying to please the people, but in just fulfilling their mission. So imagine if Jesus tried to play the game of the children in the marketplace. If he did dance, they would complain about how he danced. If you've seen me dance, there would be cause for that. If he lamented in their uh, funeral game, they would say that his tears were insincere. They just could not be happy. If Jesus came to be a people pleaser, he would have ended up pleasing no one. But because Jesus came to do all those things that please his father, he fulfilled his mission even though the majority of all people were displeased with him. That takes conviction, doesn't it? Everyone is against me, but I'm going to push through to please my father. This is the dilemma of, of I think, all human beings in, in one sense, but especially of those who have public ministry. I have to say, I'm a bit familiar with Jesus' experience. Uh, I can get emails from two different people about the same sermon. One email rips me up and down for one thing and another, And the other email is filled with compliments and appreciation, usually for the exact same part of the teaching. Um, I don't know that I'm a seasoned Bible teacher yet. I've been at it for 16 years, but I know other people that have been at it for 50 or 60 years. That's seasoned. Um, 16 years since this last September. And that sort of thing happens all the time. All the time. Over the exact same thing, I've been called names and and criticized, and I've been complimented and praised. You want to talk about confusing. So imagine if I tried to please both those who criticize and and those who compliment concerning the same thing. You see Jesus' dilemma? And mind you, it's, it's typically over the same thing that I get both. See, if I changed my MO to satisfy the critical, I would get criticized by those who compliment. And if I do all things for those who compliment, I'd miss the fun of irritating those who are critical (laughs) because they'd all leave the church. So whether I please criticisms or compliments, I'll end up compromising somehow. I will. Throughout the years, some of those who have been most critical of me have become my greatest encouragers and friends. And those who started off as my greatest encouragers left disappointed and some of them left angry. Isn't that interesting? Only if I knew now what I knew then, how would you behave? It's very strange. Who do you please? And how do you know when to please them? Jesus didn't try to please any of them. 
He just did his best to please his father, and it got him killed. But because of his focus, he did everything right. But if Jesus pleased the crowds, he would not have been the Messiah or the Savior of the world. He would have been a nobody who nobody respected. See, pleasing people is maddening. So here's my counsel to you. Avoid the temptation, okay? We have been called to do what is right, okay? As we know best from the scriptures and as we're energized by God's grace to do it. If you're criticized, run it by some godly people to see if there's any weight to it. If there is, repent and thank the critic. They were sent by God Almighty to set you straight, okay? If there's no validity to the criticism, don't hold it against the critic, but love them and just continue doing what is right. I have decided, because I don't want to be a crazy person, (laughs) to ponder criticism and with caution receive compliments for what they are. That's what I have to do. Because mind you, compliments can be just as valid or ludicrous as criticism. Compliments can be intoxicating while criticism can be crippling. And what kind of a schizophrenic would I be? (laughs) If you live under the oppression of criticism, you'll be paralyzed. If you live on the cloud of compliments, you'll be delusional. Be careful. But if you do all things to please Christ and you live for the praise of God alone, you'll do well. And we have Jesus as an example of that. Amen? Now, every time I talk about stuff like this, people are careful with their compliments and their criticism. Um, Listen, a, a criticism that is good criticism, it's objective, it's healthy. Okay, we, we should appreciate the wounds of a friend. Okay, if the righteous strike me, okay, that's good. And, and, and compliments help encourage people when the compliments are sincere and objective. I'm not looking for compliments for my sermon. Well, maybe. <laughs> They're all necessary in the family of God. They should just be applied and received with wisdom and caution. Go ahead and stand up. Let me get you out of here. Get you out early. So please fellowship with one another so that our Sunday school teachers can finish doing what they're doing. If you have a better theory about John the Baptist and Elijah, I'm interested. But I think it would be cool for Elijah to come anyway. Yeah. Let's pray and then we'll spend some more time in worship. Well, Lord Jesus, um, we, I, we were created to receive praise. We really were. But we were created to receive praise from you alone. And because sin is in the world, we, we require criticism. But Lord, with both, we have to be very cautious and wise, especially if we're criticized for doing the right thing and complimented for doing the wrong thing. Lord, help us to discern the difference, to discern the nature of both of those things, to look for godly counsel, to hear your voice. And Lord, help us to always be motivated to please you, to walk in your word, and the truth is, if, if we do actually please you according to your word, it really doesn't matter what anybody says, positive or negative. And so, Lord, just teach us. Help us to be God-pleasers and not man-fearers. And, uh, yeah. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.